Matthew 7 will begin at verse 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many he will say to me on that day, The Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name? Your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who bears these or hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see, we have come to the uh, end of basically the Sermon on the Mount, this last message on the Sermon on the Mount. I have dubbed the title as this, Maybe the Scariest Passage in the Bible. But we just read verses 21 and following. Why is it scary? Because it forces every single one of us to some serious self-examination, both preacher preachers and everyone else. What does Hebrews 9.27 tell us? Hebrews 9.27 says that it has been appointed if a man wants to die, and after that the judgment. There are no second chances after death. Verse 22 of our text alludes to that day that Jesus speaks about. And the context is quite clear that that day is a reference to that last day of history, the great day of judgment, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will gather all the nations before him. He will separate the sheep from the goats. As we read in the Confession of Faith on that chapter on the last judgment, every one of us will be there. Everyone that's ever lived will be there. And we will either go into everlasting joy or we will go into everlasting destruction. 
The scripture informs us that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. We're told that Jesus will be that judge on that great day. We're told in John chapter 5 verse 22 that God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. We're told in Acts 17 verse 31 that God the Father has fixed a day where the whole world will be judged through one man, Jesus Christ, whom God has raised from the dead. Again, I dub this passage as perhaps the scariest passage in all the Bible. And obviously, it's scary because on that great day, Jesus said there will be many. That's not encouraging. There will be many who will have said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless ones. I never knew you. It wasn't that he had known them at one point and then forgot about them. No, he says, I've never known you. You have never been in my fold. You've never been among the sheepfold. Ever. Though you thought you were. Obviously, those people that Jesus is referencing here are those who were definitely religious by, by virtue of what they say to Jesus on the great day of judgment. They were engaged in religious activity, but they built their lives on the sand as Jesus will end his Sermon on the Mount. All those that will go into destruction built their lives on the sand, though they may have thought they were building it on the rock. Jesus says you weren't. See why I consider this one of the scariest passages in the Bible? Because these people were self-deceived. Nothing is for nothing can be really worse than self-deception. To think all is well when all is not well. To think that one's going to make it, that one's going to receive the commendation of the Lord, when in reality Jesus will say, I never knew you. You were a pretender. Yes, you professed me. You, you, you professed me as Lord even. But I never knew you. Ever. You were lawless in how you lived your life. Now that's interesting that Jesus says, Depart from me, lawless ones. It wasn't just the doctrine that they were confessing. It was the, the, the lifestyle that they were living, even though they were religious. So these people have been and were and will be self-deceived. And as Scripture says in Hebrews, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God if you don't know Him. So what we learn from this is that we should never presume upon the Lord. And I mean... We must assume, by presumption, I mean that simply a profession of faith is all that we need to have. No, the scripture says it's not a profession of faith that will secure us to eternal glory on that final day. It's not a profession of faith, but as Jesus says, everyone who does my will, they are the ones 
that will make it. Those who really, when they said, Lord, Lord, they lived under the Lordship of Jesus. Meaning, and yes, we know that we're, we're not perfect. We'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But we realize that nonetheless, there must be something that bears evidence of our faith in Jesus. And so, it goes without saying, professions of faith are necessary to salvation. Remember, Jesus says, if I'm not willing to confess men before, I mean, confess Jesus before men, Jesus says, then neither will I confess you before my Father. So I've asked people at times, what do you believe about Jesus? And they've said to me, well, my faith is very personal. Okay? (laughs) But they don't want to tell me anything. It's as if I've offended them by even asking them the question. Well, the thing about it is, if I'm a closet Christian, then Jesus, well, what do you think Jesus is going to say to closet quote, Christians on the final day. If you're not willing to confess me to men, then don't expect me to confess you to my Father. See, a Christian lets other people know they're a Christian. They want to lead other people to Christ. That's the desire of a Christian. No such thing as closet Christians in that regard. So professions of faith are necessary but they are in and of themselves insufficient to withstand judgment day. A profession of faith in itself will not withstand the scrutiny of the Lord Jesus on judgment day. See why I call this one of the scariest passages in all the Bible? I don't want to give the impression. Now, when I say it's one of the scariest passages in the Bible, I want to give encouragement to us as well. All right? Because the genuine Christian does not live in fear of the day of judgment. Let's take a look at uh, a couple passages. First of all, turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son shall give life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So Jesus explicitly says that if you believe in him, then we will not come into judgment. But the issue is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Now, we're, we have looked at a passage in the past. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says that no one can confess Jesus as Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus enables men to savingly confess him as Lord. And so if I can confess and you can confess Jesus as Lord truly from the heart, then it's the Holy Spirit that is empowering you. We all know that God's saving graces come to us by virtue of the application 
of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings about the regeneration of the heart. We hear the words of Jesus, but the word, as Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, the only, and Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So if I can hear the voice of Jesus calling me to come to Jesus as my Redeemer, if I can truly hear Him, that's the work of the Spirit, and only the work of the Spirit. And if I can confess Jesus as Lord and live under His Lordship, then that is truly only the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn to uh, 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 10 to verse 21. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one is to be held God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, as I've said, professing Jesus or uh, confessing Jesus is necessary to salvation because it says it right here in the text. But a genuine confession, and it's clear from the text, I trust you saw, that a genuine confession of Jesus as the Son of God is truly linked to godly living. It doesn't separate them. Do you notice how close? And And what is the key there? The key is that there will be fruit. Well, what, what's the fruit of the one who truly confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and brings no fear of the day of judgment? What is that there? That the one that says perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear of the day of judgment. Well, if you notice in the text, the love of God was demonstrated to us in the fact that he sent his only Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means the blood sacrifice for us. He paid the death penalty in our place that we did not deserve. So the love of God is poured out on a people who did not seek Him. And so God is showing grace and mercy. 
And all those whom he shows grace and mercy by redeeming, it says, they, in turn, will love others. We love, because, verse 19, because he first loved us. We understand the Christian, you see, the reason the Christian loves other people is because the Christian knows in his or her heart they have been given something they didn't deserve. They've been given an immeasurable gift. And therefore, if love has been shown to them, they want to show love as well. It just goes with the territory. And that's why it says, no of us has ever seen God. We've never seen a manifestation of God. But the scripture says, I don't need to see God with my eyes. But it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, what does the Bible says? You're a liar. That person is a liar. They are confessing God. They're confessing Jesus. But the scripture says, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how on earth are you going to say you love God whom you've never seen? And so, love is the basis that we are perfected in that love. And that love that we manifest because we understand the love that has been shown to us, that is the confidence that carries us in the day of judgment. When we get to Matthew 25, we're going to see that that love is shown in good works done out of thankfulness to Jesus. And that will be the basis. That will be the the evidence. That will be the evidence that convicts you in a good sense that you belong to Jesus. Someone has ever said, if someone were, is there enough evidence in your life that would convict you before the world that you're a Christian? I hope so. I hope our lives are of such a nature that the world sees us as different. That the workplace sees you as different. That the people at your school sees you as different. When God's love abides in us, then we have confidence. And it's possible, therefore, as we see in that passage there in Matthew 7, where it says that Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We can have that confidence, though, on that day. Now, before we turn over there, while we're still in 1 John, I want you to take a look at 1 John 5, look at verses 1 through 3. carries on the same idea here. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. I want you to see that there is forever a link between true belief in Jesus and loving one another. They are never separated in the Word of God. The commandment, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. He said that in John 13. Here it says, what's the proof that we're born of God that we believe in Jesus? But what's the proof that we believe in Jesus? We love one another. There's godly fruit. 
Again, just turn over to the previous chapter. Turn over to 1 John 3. Look at verses 14 through 19. We've looked at that several times. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know not, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, and he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and holds his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. How shall we assure our heart before God that we love and not hate? That's how we do it. That's how we prove we're born again. That's how we prove that we keep the commandments of God. That's how we prove that we are grateful for what the Lord has done on our behalf in dying for us and in freeing us from the bondage to sin. We are a caring people. And that's why Christians historically have been, genuine Christians, have been the most caring people the world has ever known and will ever know. And that's why they have always led the way in mercy ministries the Christian church, the elect of God. They have always been the ones that have gone out to feed the hungry and to care for the poor because they care. Because they have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. It's the proof that they really believe in Jesus. So, assurance of salvation is based upon a genuine belief in Jesus as the Son of God and one who gives evidence that they really do believe in Jesus. While we're still in 1 John, look at verses uh, 7 through 13. Yeah. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he's not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Know that you have eternal life. The great word there for know is a knowledge of certainty. We can be certain. Now, if we can be certain, why does Jesus say in Matthew 7 that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will make it? Because their profession doesn't match up with how they live. That's why. So every time this, you read the Scriptures, when it talks about believing in Jesus, it's always talking about the fruit that bears testimony to that belief. So what Jesus is warning people against in Matthew 7, he's warning people against presumption. Turn back to Matthew 7 and notice... 
the condemnation in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Notice the condemnation is expressed in terms of being lawless. In other words, our lives don't match up with our profession. That's what that means. Our day-by-day living doesn't bear testimony to what we're saying with our lips. Again, those who are going to be condemned on Judgment Day are religious people, and religious people of high magnitude in what they have done. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. You see, that's what's so scary about it. Don't presume upon the Lord. Now, in that regard, <clears throat> those who harbor hate in their hearts, as First John says, have not passed out of death into life, the Scripture says. Now, there are very many different ways you can manifest hate. There in that text it says, if I see someone in great need, I don't do anything. That's a bad testimony to what I am. That means I don't have the love of God in me. Uh, an unforgiving spirit, a bitter spirit, unforgiving spirit. Jesus said, you know, in, in his parable in Luke 18, he says, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. Uh, <clears throat> take turn to John 15 to show you the, 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 the correlation between believing in Jesus and fruit. Look at John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can't do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them, cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And notice that last phrase. And so prove to be my disciples. Prove to be my disciples. I'm the vine dresser. I'm, I'm the tree. And we're all the branches. Do you abide in me or you don't? If you abide in me, Jesus says, meaning if you really know me, then I will prune you and you're going to bear much fruit. But if you're a branch, he says, that don't, that doesn't abide in me, and you're not bearing any fruit, then that branch is a dead branch, and it's cut off, and it's thrown into the fire. Now, understand the illusion that Jesus is getting at. What do you think he means, thrown into the fire? He's talking about spiritual things. You're thrown into the everlasting fire, he says. So, he says, how do you know that you're, uh, I'm a disciple of Jesus, that I'm bearing fruit? Did not Jesus say, and we looked at the text last week, that a, a bad tree 
And here's another analogy. You get the analogy of Jesus as the vine and we are the branches. Now he's got another analogy of a tree. And you understand the condition of the tree by whether it bears fruit or not. Or the type of fruit that it bears. A bad tree cannot produce anything but bad fruit. Jesus says a good tree will produce good fruit. And all those, and and we're going to see it's in the context of their... Especially, we're going to take a look at the Luke 6 passage at the end of the message today. It's in that context of the good, the good tree and the bad tree. Again, I don't know how many times we've taken a look at this passage, but it's very pertinent to us. Turn to Second Thessalonians, I mean Second Corinthians 13 verse 5, because as I said earlier, we must not presume upon the Lord. The, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Brethren, I mean, we are commanded to examine our lives to see if Jesus is in us. That's what the text says. To see if Jesus is in us. Now, we're going to be, we'll, we will prove that Jesus is in us in two ways. What we believe doctrinally about Jesus, and then what we do with our lives that bear testimony that we know Jesus. I mentioned that to you last week. That the false prophets, the condemnation has to do with their doctrine and their licentious living. And we'll pick up on that later in this message. So in, 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 when I examine myself and when you examine yourself to see if Jesus is in you, here's what you're asking yourself. Do I really believe in Jesus as the sole Savior of sinners? That's the first thing you say. Am I believing the right things about Christ? That He's the only way of salvation? That I, that's not by my good works. That's by His grace and mercy. That's the first thing you ask. Is that what I really believe in my heart? And then the second thing here is, though I fall into sin, I'm not living in sin. See, First John talks about, I didn't look at this passage, Today, but First John three says, "Not everyone who's born again of God does not practice sin." Now, earlier in First John it says, "He who thinks he's perfect and has never sinned, he is, is a liar." So, if I have the attitude I've never sinned, I'm a liar. We all know that we have sinned, but there's a difference in knowing that I'm a sinner and then living a, a life that is shameful to Christ. That just bears witness to the fact that I don't really have the love of Jesus in me. So, the fruit, so when I do self-examination, when you do self-examination, when you go beyond what you intellectually are believing about Christ, you're asking yourself, am I manifesting the love of Jesus? Yeah, I know, sometimes I may say things... That, uh, that I shouldn't, or I may do something, and I may show uh, disrespect, or I may mouth off, or uh, I can be uncaring at times, because we, 
that can happen to us. But what, what is the characterization of our life? What is the general thrust? That's the issue. Is there enough that, that demonstrates that the love of Jesus is there? Yeah, I may fall at times, but falling is different than living in rebellion against God. So the essence of this self-examination is to determine if Jesus is in us. And we do that by saying, is the Spirit of God in us bearing fruit? So, without the Spirit of God, none of us will make it. Now, we know from the Scriptures that justification, that doctrine, that we are declared righteous not by our own deeds, but by the merit of Christ, we know from the scriptures it is not based on our good works. But the scripture is clear. While it says that we are not justified by our works, it says we will never be saved without those good works as the evidence or the fruit of saving faith. Just as long as you understand, I'm not saved by my works but I'm not saved without them either, because the, the person who has saving faith is a person who will show the love of Christ, who will show fruit. Now, one of the best proof texts of what I just told you is James chapter 2, so turn there. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. And so that you know that we're dealing with Matthew 7, not to be presumed upon the Lord on the day of judgment, our challenge is how are we going to get through that great day of judgment and hear the great words of Jesus enter to the joy of your Lord and not hear the terrifying words depart from me. Look at James 2, look at verses 14 through 20. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them anything what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I see that verse 19 says, It is possible to be doctrinally correct about God and still go to hell. That's what it says. You believe that God is one, you believe in the oneness of God, and, and you can believe in the Trinity of God, three in one. Guess what? The demons also know who Jesus is. You know, when Jesus uh, would come up to some, the demons uh, who occupied people, there were instances where they, the demons shouted out, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Are you come to torment us before our time? See, the demons know that they are forever lost, and they want to know, is Jesus coming to send them to that everlasting place? What did, the, what did the demons say to Jesus? 
You are the Son of God. Satan knows very well that Jesus is the Son of God. His demonic realm knows very well that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, the false prophets confess that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't know Him truly. The demons aren't saved. And neither are the false prophets. And neither are those who say, Lord, Lord, but there's the, the, their belief remained uh, intellectual. You know, um, in our self-examination of ourselves, we ask ourselves these important questions. Do I really believe that Jesus is the only way, and do I genuinely walk in obedience to Him? You know what should get our attention? Now, this may be true or not true about our eternal state. The last thing we would ever want to hear anyone say about us, I just don't see the love of Jesus in you. If I had someone say that to me, it would, it would shatter my spirit. I'd say, what, what have I done that someone would have that perception of me? If they don't see the love of Jesus in me, I mean, talk to me. Talk to me. Because I, I don't want to be self-deluded. You know, when those things occur, it should be like daggers into our heart. There are warning signs, is what they are, perhaps, to us. And we need to step back and say, am I deluding myself? Is my, is my profession of faith just outward and, and not really inward? Uh, am I not really the type of Christian that, that the Bible talks about? Am I missing something here? You see, Christians want to please the Lord Jesus. And genuine Christians want to be viewed as someone who really cares. Genuine Christians want to be not viewed as being ones who are arrogant, but as being humble. Remember, God says he exalts the humble, but resists the proud. And so, brethren, there is, I, I want to convey to you what the Scripture says. There is a knowledge of the head, and then there's a knowledge of the heart. And while there is a relationship of those two, there's also a distinction between those two. Now, salvation begins with intellectually comprehending truth. Intellectually comprehending who Jesus is and what he claims to be. So when you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you are intellectually affirming something. Uh, when you confess him as the God-man, you intellectually are affirming something. You have to do that. But, friends, it doesn't end there. That's the point. It doesn't end there. And the frightening thing in Scripture is there are those who know things about God but their heart is not yet engaged. Meaning, the fruit of the Spirit is missing. And that's where the heart comes in, that, and that is where it's missing in some people. So, you know, in that regard, let's see. So here's what I've got to ask myself. We're going to look at verse 22 of Matthew 7 in a moment. But here's what I'm asking self. I've got to know something intellectually about Jesus. 
But then I also know, got to know that the, that knowledge must translate into godly living. You've heard me say before that some in the Christian faith want to drive this wedge between doctrine and practical Christianity. And I say that's a terrible thing. There's no such thing in the Bible. We don't drive wedges between doctrine and, and godly living. The scripture, an accurate understanding of scripture says that sound doctrine always leads to proper living. We're going to see in a moment where a lack of sound doctrine leads to immoral living. So we've got to be sure our, our minds are engaged and we've got to be sure our hearts are engaged. Now that is the genuine Christian. You know, as First John 2 says, I must confess that Christ has come in the spirit or the flesh. Otherwise, the Bible says I have the spirit of Antichrist. First John 2. So the gospel goes beyond the mind, though it begins with the mind. That's why one of the greatest books, I forget who wrote this, uh, might have been Packer, it could have been Walter Chantry, I forget. Might have been Martin Lloyd-Jones, doesn't matter. He says, in evangelism, you've got to begin with the mind. You talk about sound doctrine with the mind, but it says it has to go to the heart. If it never goes to the heart, they're lost. So he says you've got to have all. And he says, and then there's got to be, when it goes to the heart, then the will has to be activated that wants to obey. So he says genuine salvation involves all three faculties of men, their mind, their heart, and their will. That is the Christian. Now take a look. Let's turn back to Matthew 7. Take a look at verse 22. How is it possible? This, this passage has often perplexed me. I've learned more and more the more I study about it, fortunately. Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's a preacher. And in your name cast out demons. That's doing great signs and wonders. And, well, and in, their, in your name perform many miracles. How is it possible to be a preacher of truth in, to a certain degree and be lost? How is it possible to be the instrument of casting out demons and be the instrument of God to do amazing things and be lost. You see why I call this maybe the most scary passage in all the Bible? How can that be? Well, we're going to take a look at some examples in the Scripture to see how it works itself out. So what we see here is that when we're dealing with truth, let's talk about false prophets for a moment. The, the one who... It says, cause me, Lord, Lord, prophesize in my name, but I don't know you. <laughs> well, have you ever heard the name Balaam? Yeah, Balaam is that story in Numbers, the one where the donkey that he was riding on, God supernaturally enabled the donkey to talk to him. Yeah, we're, we're talking about that guy. 
The story of Balaam is this. Um, the king of Moab wanted, well, the king of Moab wanted Balaam because they knew he was renowned, by the way, in the Near East as being one who had the gift of prophecy, of divination. The king of Moab was fearful of the armies of Israel as he ought to be fearful of them. And he wanted to have Balaam curse the armies of Israel because he knew that God spoke through Balaam. And now the thing about it was Balaam would, uh, would say to Balak, who was the king of Moab, he says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And then when he would send word to Balak, he says, no, I can't curse the armies of Israel if God doesn't curse them through me. And I don't think God's going to curse them. And so Balak ups the ante and says, he's going to give you the rewards of divination. He says, I'll pay you, Balaam, to curse Israel. I just want you to curse them. He says, I, can't, I can only do that. Well, as we're going to see, Balaam, though through your initial reading of Numbers, you might think he's an all right guy, but I'm telling you, the Scripture pictures him as a very bad person. Now, we're going to look at why, how the Bible actually portrays Balaam. Balaam is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Okay? Now, he is one who has, mind you, he has the gift of prophecy. Now, you're going to tell me, maybe at the lunch hour, John, how can you have the gift of prophecy and be condemned? I said, that's kind of hard. Yeah, I understand that's hard. But I'm about to tell you. It may be difficult, but it is possible. Because Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I'm telling you, right here... After the fact, Balaam will be one who will say that, and then Jesus will say, Go to eternal destruction, Balaam. Let's take a look at the passages about Balaam in the New Testament and see what it says. First of all, turn to Second Peter 2, verses 14 and 15. Now, I read portions of this passage last week on the false prophets, and that's what all of chapter 2 is about in Second Peter 2. So it's, chapter 2 is talking about these false prophets who are, and it calls them false teachers who have come in secretly introducing destructive heresies, verse 1. And among them, the name Balaam comes up. Look at verse 14 and 15, 2 Peter 2. Having eyes full of adultery, that ne- talking about these false prophets, that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's the first thing we learn about them. These false prophets, who the scripture here is condemning wholesale, says they are following the way of Balaam, who loved, says they were trained in greed, 
who loved the wages of unrighteousness. We're going to see how that flushed itself out in Balaam's life. So that's the first thing we know about Balaam. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Turn with me to Jude 11. Now it's this context talking about uh, false prophets in Jude. And notice what it says in verse 11. I mean, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, what do we learn about Balaam here? It says, Balaam, they have rushed these false prophets, of which Balaam is an example of, have rushed into the error of Balaam, perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, what do we know about Korah in the Scriptures? Korah was one of those leading figures in Israel who, along with others, led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, saying, who are you to take leadership over this people? I mean, God speaks to the whole congregation. Who are you, Moses? And we're told that Moses falls on his face, saying, you have no idea what you just said. And God says to Moses, tomorrow, he says, I'm going to to appear and I'm going to tell you whose side I'm on. And he tells everybody, separate away from the tents of Korah. Because I'm about to do something. If the earth doesn't open up and swallow them up, then Moses says, I'm not a true prophet. But if it does open up and swallow them, I'm, I'm the anointed one. Guess what happened? The earth opened up and Korah and his whole family, everybody was swallowed up. Now what was Korah engaged in? Korah challenged God through challenging the anointed of God God's, as it were, leaders, Moses and Aaron. So we know something about the error of Balaam, that it constitutes disobedience to God and his word. That's the way of Balaam. Now let's take a look at the third instance of Balaam. Turn to Revelation 2, verse 14. Now, Jesus, this is uh, Jesus speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So he's speaking to uh, Pergamum, and he says, beginning in verse uh, 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. Now, all right, now we're, we're piecing together the life of Balaam. He, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He manifested a spirit of rebellion like Korah, though he's a prophet, one whom God speaks. And yet here Jesus says, Balaam led Israel into idolatry and into immorality of great kinds. Well, turn to Numbers chapter 31. Now we're going to just pick out a couple verses out of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2. Now the sons of Reuben, that were in chapter 31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel and the Midianites, 
Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Jump over to verse 7 and 8. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male, and they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of the slain, Evi, Rakim, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And guess who else was killed? Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Then look, uh, let's read down, uh, continue. And the sons of Israel captured the women of Midian and their little ones and their cattle and their flocks and their goods. They plundered. Then they burned all the cities which they lived and all the camps with fire. They took all the spoil and all the prey, both of man and beast. They brought the captives and the prey and the spoil to Moses and Eleazar the priest to the congregation of the sons of Israel to the camp of the plains of Moab, which are by the Jordan opposite Jericho. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army. The captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, You spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now what was, what was happening? The story goes back to Numbers 25. And let's, let's, let's put this all together about Balaam. Balaam says, I will not curse. I cannot curse Israel because I can only say what God's going to say through me, and God's not going to do it. And the king of Balak says, I'm going to up the ante. I'll give you more money. I'll give you more money. And then Balak says, even if you give me half, half of your kingdom, I can only say what God's going to say. Now, the thing about, you know why the donkey spoke to Balaam in the first place? Because God had already told, conveyed to Balaam, that God was on the side of Israel, no one else. And he says, I've already told you this, but Balaam decided he would keep going back, and when the, when the money was offered more and more, he says, well, let me go and ask the Lord, and what was he doing that? to see if the Lord had changed his mind. Now, do you think the Lord's going to change his mind? No. But, Balaam keeps inquiring of the Lord. <laughs> and then, we're told that Balaam, uh, God said to him, says, now, if these men come from Balak, uh, don't go with them. Well, the thing about it is, Balaam decides, he doesn't wait on them, he goes out to look for them with his donkey and that's when the angel of the Lord appears before the donkey the donkey sees this figure with a sword and the donkey won't move well Balaam doesn't see anything the, and so the donkey's backing up crushes his foot and in, in Balaam he's hitting the donkey he says get up donkey and it falls down and then God empowered the donkey to say quit hitting me. <laughs> the donkey said, why are you hitting me? Is it, do you see what's in front of us? And it says, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam to see this angel with the sword who was ready to kill Balaam because it says, 
Where you are going, you should not be going. Now, Balaam says, I can only say what God says, but do you see what's happening? He's pushing the edge. He's always inquiring of the Lord. Are you going to change your mind, Lord? Are you going to change your mind? And he's, he's disobeying the Lord all along. And when Moses says that through the counsel of Balaam, he taught Balak to lead Israel into great sin. And here's how he did it. I can't, all we're told here is the counsel of Balaam to Balak. Here's how you piece it together. He's saying, look, obviously I can't, and the king's disappointed that he never will curse Israel. Actually, he will bless Israel. Because he can only say what God tells him to say. But apparently Balak says, you know what? I can get you to have Israel curse themselves. Wow. Well, those Moabites, they worship the god Baal And they have sacrifices. Invite the sons, have the women, invite the sons of Israel to this sacrifice to the gods of Baal and you can apparently get them to curse themselves by violating the word of God. So this is where Numbers 25 comes in, in this whole story there of Balaam. Many of the sons of Israel will be seduced, enticed to go join the sacrifice, the feast. I've told you before what Baal Peor worship entailed. It was the worship of the sun god. And part of the ritual of worshiping Baal Peor was cult prostitution. Sexual immorality as part of the worship. That's what Baal Peor worship was. So when the sons of Israel went and they committed sexual immorality with all these women of Moab, then God says to Moses, when you find them, you execute them in front of the sun. I've told you about that. In front of the sun, because that's what they worship. And you know why Moses was upset? He says, when they came back having killed uh, as uh, the enemies of Israel, killed Balaam along with it as he deserved to die, he says, what are you doing sparing the women here? He says, did they not entice the sons of Israel? Did they not seduce these men to come over and have sexual immorality as part of the worship? He says, every one of those women, he says, the only girls to be spared are the ones who did not have sexual relations with men. Spare them, but all the others, kill them. You didn't kill them. He says, take them out and kill them. Lest to teach Israel, you shall worship Jehovah and only him. So what do we know about Balaam? Why is he this figure of a false prophet? Uh, in a, well, in a sense, he prophesied that which was true, and yet in his heart, he loved the wages of unrighteousness, found a way to tell Balak how Israel could be cursed by committing immorality, and therefore, that is the doctrine that Jesus says to avoid 
of Balaam. This false doctrine that disobeys God. What about casting out demons? How is it possible to cast out demons and have Jesus say to certain people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless ones. That's a tough one, isn't it? Also. We'll turn over to Matthew 10. I'm not going to preach a whole lot about it because I'll spoil that time when I get to Matthew 10. But take a look at Matthew 10, verses 1 through 3. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. Jesus gave him power to cast out demons and heal the sick. Judas, the traitor. Ever in the case of text, Judas was part of that group and was able to do that. And yet, Judas is in hell today. We know that from the scriptures because it says in Acts that when he hanged himself, the apostles wanted to draw lots to replace him. It says, Judas, who went to his own place. And remember, Jesus says about Judas Iscariot in Mark 14:21, it says it would have been better for him never to have been born than to have betrayed the Son of Man. So Judas will be sent into everlasting destruction, and yet he cast out demons in Jesus' name. And he healed the sick in Jesus' name. See why it's a scary passage? Heard the name Demas? Demas was uh, a companion of Paul on his journeys. We're told in Colossians 4.10, when Paul was writing the Colossians, saying, we're praying for you. He says, Luke, the physician, Luke, who will write the gospel of Luke, Luke sends his greetings to you, and so does Demas send his greetings to you. All right? And then in 2 Timothy 4.10, we will learn that Paul will say, Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. Now, First John two says all that the Father says. The love of the Father is one thing, but the love of the world. If you have the love of the world, First John two fifteen says you don't have the love of the Father in you if you love the world. Demas was with the Apostle Paul ministering, and yet he will apostatize. He will forsake, and he will leave. Turn over to Philippians 1. Look at verses 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusted in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I rejoice. Paul says, there are some who are preaching the gospel with impure motives, who are jealous of Paul, who are out to hurt Paul. But Paul says, at least the gospel is being preached. Whether in pretense or in truth, if the gospel goes out, it goes up. Now, here's the, here's the frightening thing to every preacher. Every preacher needs to understand there is a separation from being an instrument of God and then a life. Okay? The mistake that some make is that they think, because I preach the truth, all is okay. When the Bible just says there are some whose life doesn't match up. Now, <clears throat> let me mention, how is it possible for someone to preach the gospel and yet he himself be lost? I found this article. I know the name Paul Elliott. Usually what Paul Elliott writes, I like. Paul Elliott wrote an article called, Can God Use an Unsaved Preacher to Lead People to Christ? And he told, told a story that I'm going to relate to you. All right? This is a true story. He talks about the tragic case of Charles Templeton. And here's what he writes. I'm just going to read just a couple paragraphs what Elliot wrote about Charles Templeton. While such a thing is not the norm, God does use such means. A notable example of an unsaved preacher God used in recent times is Charles B. Templeton, one of the founders of Youth for Christ in the mid-1940s. Templeton was an associate of Billy Graham from the late 1940s into the 1950s. One of the first well-known television preachers, Templeton, founded churches and preached the gospel to tens of thousands in North America and Europe, and there are still people living today who were genuinely converted in response to his preaching. But in 1957, Templeton shocked evangelicals by publicly rejecting the gospel he had preached to multitudes. He spent the rest of his life speaking against Christianity, he declared that no one can know for certain if God even exists, much less whether Jesus saves. In later life, he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. 1999, he wrote that. During his later years, he said that he wished he had the faith in Christ that he once preached to others, but he would not bow the knee and repent. God gave Templeton many years to repent, but he passed into a Christless eternity in 2001 at the age of 85. There you have it. He's not the only person I've known about that who said, I was once that preacher. Though there are some who were unbelievers who didn't renounce it, but who said, I didn't know Jesus, but I still preach Jesus. 
You see, the gospel, the gospel is these doctrinal truths about who Jesus is, and there are some men who are bright enough to understand how that relates together. And can say, if you're going to be saved, you've got to believe only in Jesus, the Son of God. They understand that's what the text says. They are smart enough they can read that. But their heart is not engaged. Or they have these secret sins, like Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness and led people to idolatry and to immorality. See why it's one of the scariest passages in all the Bible? How someone can prophesy in the name of Jesus, cast out demons, and do many marvelous things, and yet Jesus say, I never knew you. Because God can separate the message of truth from the person. He can separate the message of truth from the person. That's why... The passage is fearful to everyone to be sure they're not being presumptuous about professing Jesus and to preachers who are being be sure, look, yeah, I may be know the gospel intellectually, but I could be a reprobate in my lifestyle. And see, there could be some people that may not know that. Well, guess what? Jesus knows all things. And Jesus knows who are the false preachers. Well, let me just conclude quickly. I know I've gone beyond an hour here. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount by telling the story of the parable of of building a house on sand on the rock. Everybody who builds their life on the sand, who professes Christ... Now notice, look, look at our text in Matthew 7... Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. So as James says, do not be hearers only, but doers of the word. Doers of the word, not hearers only. Jesus says, if you're a hearer only, you're like a man who builds his house on the sand. When we lived in Corpus Christi, Padre Island ran the coast of Texas all the way down to Mexico. And I went out there several times. You know what Padre Island is? It's nothing but a big sandbar. No joke. It's all sand. But guess where some of the most expensive houses in Corpus Christi were? Padre Island. What are they thinking? 1919, a hurricane devastated most of Corpus Christi. 1973, another hurricane came into Corpus Christi. Not as bad as 1919. You build your house on Padre Alley, you are a lunatic. Unless you've got $500,000 to throw away, because I'm telling you some of those homes were worth that much. They were some of the best homes in all of Corpus Christi. And you guess what? When, when storms would arise, a lot of times the people on Padre Island wanted the taxpayers of the main city to help them send out rescue vehicles and that. A lot of the people in the city were upset. It, rightly so. says, wait a minute. Who's building that? We didn't tell them to go out and build on Padre Island, but they went ahead and built on it anyway. You're asking for trouble. 
Jesus says this. The fool builds a house on sand. Because eventually, there's a storm going to come, eventually. He says, everybody's building. Every one of us here is building a house. Now, you're either building on the rock or you're building on sand. We're all building on either the rock or the sand, all of us. Every human being that's ever lived or ever will live is building either on the rock or the sand. Don't call me Lord unless you're willing to do what I say. If you have saving faith, it's going to show up in the fruit of your life. It will show up. Don't go into judgment day presuming on the Lord. Now let me end with encouragement. If you've truly trusted the Lord Jesus with all your heart, in Him alone, and you understand your sinners, and you know I fall, but, you know, Lord, help me, help my life to manifest your fruit. Remember, perfect love casts out fear. The genuine Christian doesn't have to fear the day of judgment. You don't have to. But we need to examine ourselves. Do I really know Jesus? Let's pray.